Hello, welcome back to the podcast. Welcome to the last block of episodes of 2018. Um, yeah, so I've got five or six lined up till the end of November. Then I will leave you to eat turkey, drink champagne, do whatever you do in December. I don't know. Um, but yeah, so episode number 73. Uh, this is with Samantha Payton. She is the person behind Isolated Heroes, uh, which is a fashion brand based here in Dundee. Uh, I'm going to struggle to sum this up. I mean, I think Samantha describes it as lots of sequins, lots of glitter and faux fur. Um, I think she says, oh, there's a great little quote. Oh, I cannot remember it. Um, um, life could always have more sparkle, I think. Oh, I hope I'm getting that right. But I mean, you get the gist of it. Um she makes these amazing uh, pieces, collections, um, and has a phenomenal following that is super dedicated to her and to the brand. Uh, and I think she's, I mean, we talk about it, we touch on it, that um, she does go out of her way to, to sort of create these genuine connections and really respond to to what the, the supporters and the followers of the brand want. Uh, she made a particular um, really strong bond with the plus size community. She talks about that, and I think uh, she says that it makes people feel like they can have an identity. They can get something that isn't just the norm, maybe a one-off piece that sits in the wardrobe that is completely off the wall. It's a bit mad, um, yeah. But I, th- I th- I'm sort of blown away by her commitment to to the fan base and the fact that ninety percent of her audience comes through Instagram. Um, I don't, I've definitely not had anyone on the podcast um, that's quite like that. And I don't think I've ever spoken to anyone that's quite like that. And I found that the sort of facts and figures that she talked about really interesting. Although after it, she was kind of worried about boring people. Um, whereas I thought it was that actually the, the flip of it. Um, but one of the difficulties she talks about in it is the sort of mentoring and taking things to the next level. I mean, as you'll hear, she wants to scale up. She wants to bring staff in in order to, to sort of create bigger orders um, and sort of make more product and sort of grow the brand. But it's a real difficulty, and I think it's something that resonated with uh, Haley Scanlon as well. So I think it's very particular to the. Sorry, it's not very particular. It is um, relevant in the fashion sector, but it's also relevant across the whole creative sector that we need better mentors that are much more experienced, much more relevant to the, the areas that, that we're working in. Uh, because a lot of people are doing things that have never been done before in the city um, and potentially not in Scotland either. So I think it's something we need to look at. I don't know who takes responsibility for that. Um, yeah, I don't know how we do it. I'm not the answers person. I'm just throwing out a thought or a question. But yeah, mentors for creatives. How do we do that? How do we do that well? How do we support people that are going forward that are doing things that haven't necessarily been done before or done in that way? Yeah. Um it's, yeah, it's another, it's a total whirlwind of an episode. Uh, really enjoyable. And yeah, I don't, I don't think I've got any plug-in before I get into it. Um, yeah, I mean, if you are new to the podcast, which some of you hopefully are, I mean, it's at CCC Dundee on Twitter and Instagram, facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash CCC Dundee. Getting quite good at that bit. 73 episodes of practice. Yeah. So yeah, let's get into the episodes. This is number 73 and this is with Samantha Payton. So I think my like fashion journey, it wasn't like I was really specifically, that's what I wanted to do. When I was at school, I didn't really, I was always academic, but I never really tried. Um, I wasn't there a lot. And then I remember it got to the point of going into fifth year and you actually had to decide what you want to do. And 
I kind of want to be an art therapist and that's what I decided I want to do, go into prisons and help people with their feelings and all this stuff. I mean, I don't even know where that came from. And um, then I remember we had like a careers fair and Harriet Watt had a stand at it and I was suddenly like, oh, what's this? This is something that I could actually do and I'm interested in. Because I was always interested in a textile element when I was at school doing art and design, but I never realised it could become fashion. So I went down to Harriet Watt, got an unconditional, left straight from school, didn't really know what I was doing. And um, I was on a course called Fashion Design for Industry, which is very industry-led. So they were giving you briefs and it was actually live projects that you're working on the whole way through. So it wasn't really, really creative. It was more like you were having to work in the specific boundaries. And then when it got to third and fourth year and we could develop our own personal style, that's when I realised like the things that I really enjoyed doing and what I felt like I was actually quite good at. And then when it came to fourth year, we worked with Mark Ely from Ely Kishimoto, which is a big London-based print studio and textile business. They do like homewares, interiors. They had Fashion Week collections at the time as well. And he somehow was involved with Harriet Watt and... Um, and I remember we had to do like our lineups when you had like your mock of your collection all in your twelves, and you came up and he was literally tearing people apart, like picking stuff up, like cutting things up and everyone was terrified of him. And I just wasn't really that scared of him. I don't know. I've never had a problem with like authority figures and I've never had that nervousness. So I remember I just went in, told him this is what I'm wanting to do. I was wanting to street cast my models because we had agency people in um, and they just didn't fit the look of it. My stuff was meant to be it wasn't like streetwear in terms of what streetwear is now, but I just wanted it to be kind of like fluid and genderless. And I, I, when you're at uni, you're really focused on fashion design. That people really want to try and push it into a luxury market. And um, I just was... Why do you think that is? I don't know. I feel like the whole way through my career, I've just kind of always thought as well, like you need to be a luxury brand, you need to be a luxury brand. And just to me, like my customer base isn't there. And I knew even at the time that... The way people were reacting, it's almost like when I was in fourth year that I started to have a brand before I even had like a graduate collection. I was writing a blog, people were following it, where I was like styling little things with my twelves. So every time you make a twelve for something in your collection, which is like your mock-up in Calico, I was doing like a mini photo shoot for it. And then I was sending this off to bloggers. And at the time, bloggers were massive. It's not like now when there's like a million influencers in the world. I remember like Michelle from Kingdom of Style, they had like a huge blog at the time. And I just emailed her and was like, want to invite you to our show. This is what I'm doing. So I'd already, even Susie Bubble, I'd already started feeding in a collection to them before there was a collection there. So in my head, like I had an idea of a brand before I knew what like that kind of thing was. So yeah, I've lost track again. So <laughs> when I worked with Mark Healy and worked with him in my lineup, I think he just saw that it was someone who was really focused and driven. And I mean, I didn't have, I had all the pieces here, but nothing was in an order. So he was like, do what you want. So everyone else had all these beautiful, slim model team models that were like avatars. And I'd like street cast this group of people that just looked like the biggest bunch of oddballs ever. But um, it was great. And we had, instead of walking up and down the runway, they were dancing to Major Lazer. Um, and they had like, we made all these props. It was like shrunken voodoo heads and totem poles. And it was like performance art. And that's just what, it was exciting to me and because it was totally different from everyone else in the rest of the show it picked up loads of press which was great so then I decided like a week later that I had a brand which is absolutely ridiculous <laughs> and I think I registered as self-employed like six months after graduating decided I had a business so now my business has literally been trading for like a million years and I'm like oh my god what's happening so when when you were at university uh -huh. um and you were sort of nearing the end of that mm -hmm. was it 
like setting up on your own was that something that was encouraged or is the more like done route is to go and work i think it had it what they've done they've got really good industry connections so you're almost set up that you could go and work for another company or firm so they do a lot with hunter burberry a lot of traditional brands um and heritage brands and that's just not something that i was interested in at all and i think like the brands i admired at the time were like cassette player carrie mundane um oh my god who else it wasn't just her like me kirchhoff and I just like absolutely idolised Louise Gray. None of them are even there anymore. So I'm quite glad that I didn't go down. And I had friends that had went down and left and are working for people. And like their businesses rolled up after two years and then they were kind of in a position that were stuck. Whereas in that two years that I came up here and it was just started as like a creative project that ended up becoming a business and it's working. Um, I didn't have any idea what I was doing. It was just like more naivety and thinking that oh, what can go wrong kind of thing. So, so why, why did you come to Dundee then? Well, I'm from Dundee originally, so basically it was just that I was skin. You're always skin. Like your graduate collection when you do fashion design costs a fortune. I mean, you spend over a grand and you're like, where did you even get that money from to do it? And um, you're just in a position that you've got no money. You're like, what am I going to do? So the whole way through, <laughs> the whole way through Harriet Watt, I had a job in William Hill because my dad was like an area manager there, the betting shop, the bookies. Um so, yeah, I just came back and was working there and was like, I'll try and see if I could get a studio space or somewhere in Dundee. And before I even thought of that, I was just trying to still do stuff at home. I knew there was like a momentum and a drive there and people were interested. So I had to like feed on it straight away. Um, I went down to London for a bit because so many of my friends had moved down there. And like, was just we were just selling stuff at markets. We'd done Camden, Hackney, Wick, London Fields and trying to find out like what price range people are wanting to buy products for because even then when I was graduating everyone was like this is going to be luxury this is what you're doing and I tried to bring samples into stores like Machine um, and it was just you know kind of almost laughed out the door because your the product just was not at that price point so, so, so what at that point what sort of things were you were you making oh god it's actually embarrassing to even think about that I went into shops with them so my whole graduate collection is kind of different to what we do now um I think like the colour and the aesthetic's still there and it's always been there from then, but it was completely different objects. So I was doing like African wax cotton t-shirts that were just fabric that was picked up from Dalston Market. And then we were like embellishing bits of the print with sequins or beads or what I was doing. And then I had like faux leather sleeves. Um, I'm actually cringe. See, I've had some people that have been like, I bought something for your first collection. And I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> Probably had like a sleeve sewn on backwards, something else. It was so bad. I remember in um, fourth year when we were doing our graduate collection, they said that it was like the most aesthetic to look at because it's something completely different, but the lecturers couldn't look it up close because it frightened them how badly it was put together. <laughs> so, yeah. God, that stuff was terrible that I was first putting out. But it's a learning curve, isn't it? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, it's the same in any sort of mm -hmm. profession. It's going to take you a long time to get to that that professional, that level of um, the other things that are in, well, in your case, sort of in the shops that, are, mm -hmm. that you're seeing. And I think as well, it's like finding your strengths. At the beginning, you're doing everything and I've never been strong at production. Even now, I absolutely hate sewing. Hate it. Just, I only jump on a sewing machine if I absolutely have to. So, yeah, you just know where your strengths lie. God help if anyone gets anything that I've made. <laughs> <laughs> so... I mean, from coming to Dundee, mm -hmm. um, so how did you start to develop the the business then? I remember, because I had a blog that was getting quite high readership at the time, um, Creation Stylist had emailed me, and this was like, 
I don't know how many weeks after graduating. I didn't really know anything about it. I knew people had stylists, but I didn't know what happened with press pools and when they get all your collection in and then they give it to people. So they'd ask for like five I, I pieces. also don't know anything okay. about that. So you might be so, explain. Yeah, so in like the industry, you've got like your celebrity clients and your clients and then they have stylists that pull stuff from designers. So they'll ask you for a pool. So they might ask for like five or six items from your current collection that you'd send to them. And then they might ask you to make like a custom so at the time, if you get asked to do a custom for a celebrity and you're literally like 18 and have just graduated, you're like, yes, this is amazing. Actually, I couldn't have been 18. I went to uni 18. Anyway, um, yeah, but you don't get paid for any of that. So that's like the big downfall. So you could have like, we've done ones for like Lily Allen and amazing things and you send it to them and it might not even get worn and you don't get paid for it. And then you're lucky if you get your samples back six months later. So by then you're on a different collection. And you're left with all the stock that you'd sell in sample sales. So you you're doing it purely based on the potential for oh, exposure yeah. because the exposure could be amazing mm. i mean like some of the exposure we've had things off the first ones press pools that we done built the brand so for creation yeah we were asked to send all these samples and make her things for the vmas and i was just left i was making it in my mom and dad's bedroom and um was just like this is amazing i remember even at the time they sent like I had to be sent with FedEx the next day and I had to like beg my dad to use his credit card and put like 250 quid worth of goods over on it. It cost a fortune to ship it to America the next day. I don't think he still still talks about that. Um, yeah, and I remember that was like our starting point that I realised that, God, people are actually interested in things. So I think then I needed a space as well because my mum and dad only live in like a three-bedroom house and it's bungalow and there was just dressmaking pins everywhere and all this stuff everywhere and I needed to find a space. So... I moved into Tin Roof not long after graduating. And I mean, Tin Roof is, well, was an artist mm-hmm. collective. So, I mean, was that a natural fit for what you were doing? I think I was just really looking for like a space and I didn't know much about the creative scene in Dundee because I hadn't been here for four years. I'd been down in Heriot Wall and um, asking around. It was good. I liked how it was a kind of collective space and it wasn't closed off. It was and for starting and there was a lot of like collaboration involved I shared with Emma Alexander who was actually on like the panel or whatever they're called there um who ran the place and I don't know she like shot some of my collections at the beginning so it was kind of like a collaborative thing with everyone who was there so it was a good creative space so obviously you've got like a really I mean you've got a really sizable following on on social media now um and you I mean you've done a great job like building that up over time Mm-hmm. So in the in the sort of the early days of it, how did you go about approaching like social media? I didn't really think about it at the time. I remember when I started, Tumblr was massive. So I mean, that's how long ago it was, and um, I wish that was still a thing. Like I really do. And we, I was always loved collaborating with people and bringing other people into the table. And Tammy, my friend who has DIY nails, um, I brought her Luke Levy, who ended up opening a company called Here Hair for Heroes. Now she's Mamalu Bones on Instagram. It's all different. Um and Kirsten Kerr and I brought this group together and we made this amazing lookbook. I think at the time as well, probably now if I look at it, it should have been a stylist because I just enjoy like making the images and making the collection images in the lookbook more than any of the production side of things. So I was constantly shooting and it was just like bringing new content. I mean I didn't know what content was then. So we were constantly bringing new content every few weeks and just collaborating with different creatives. And to me, it was just like a really natural process to do. But 
I guess for anyone following to see like a clear progression of a brand from the beginning and all these different people coming in and brought into different audiences so I remember we done this shoot and it was on Tumblr and it was reblogged like thousands of times and I was like god this is insane how many people have viewed this and then that was when Instagram just started and I think we kind of were on the platform it wasn't when it just started but it was still a lot smaller community then and just joined the platform at the right time and um, I think from now it's grown because people enjoy watching the progression of a brand and like seeing the story develop so do, do you want me to take me through that processing because you talked about sort of this showing this end to end so from where the the idea starts the process and then going through to actually having a, a collection for sale like how how does that process work so we i've started originally it was two collections per year now it's i try and put new items every four to six weeks but it's, it could just be one item why so why we'll completely change, change that yeah because you would never have any cash flow if you put out two collections per year. You'd have to be selling such a big chunk of it. And um, we work 80% direct to consumer, 20% wholesale. So our 20% wholesales are just a number of stockists that purchase the collection. So they purchase four collections per year from us. And then that kind of averages out a cash flow for the whole year. And then all the direct to consumer is just constant. So... I don't want to get too bored of my like figures and stuff, but 90% of our traffic comes from Instagram. So that's how important the platform is to our online store. So if we didn't have that community or my page got hacked, touch wood, hopefully that never happens. Um, yeah, there wouldn't be more new traffic coming to the site. So that is the main platform. Because I mean, how many followers have you got at the moment? 48,000, I think. So yeah. Um, I think we've hit 50 and dropped. I mean, every time we get it, I'm like, yes! And then it bloody goes away again. <laughs> it's so annoying. But I think every time they clear up, like, spam accounts and things as well, because sometimes I think you've got a load of nonsense following you. But as an engaged audience, I use that engagement calculator all the time. I'm obsessed with Instagram now. Um, but, yeah, so design process has changed because I think, like, the brand and the level that it's at... And the cost price, people are wanting to purchase things all the time. They're not wanting to purchase four times a year. They're wanting new items. And because we make and manufacture in-house, we've got the capacity to do that. So I could trial something. Rather, before we were designing a full collection, it could be 30 items, putting out two a year, and then say 10 items weren't popular and you were stuck with them for so long and you'd made stock then it was just a blooming disaster really so yeah it's just a lot more flexibility in terms of designing things and bringing out like limited releases and i feel like we're selling a lot more that way mm -hmm. so that's why so yeah our process is i got loads of inspiration images normally i'm sketching something this collection that we're bringing out on the first of november i'll have about 25 items in it but in between that i'll we'll be making something and making a twelve of it and I'll be like actually let's add this or we'll change this so it ends up being quite small and ends up massive collections that we bring out as well so like the the, the inspiration phase of it is that like yeah, magazines is that no it's not really magazines I think oh god not Pinterest either <laughs> I don't know sometimes normally it starts with fabric so I work with a lot of fabric agents and obviously like the brand synonymous we're using sequins and faux furs so that's almost like a backbone to every collection we use that throughout all of them so it could start with find a nice fabric or a nice colour. I mean, most everything is so colourful. And then I'll go to our fabric agent and be like, this is what we're using. I want to, this is my colour scheme for this collection. Can you help find me this? Um, they're like constantly sourcing and they work with like different distributors and they're all over the world. And rather than me having to go to like um, 
all the different trade shows for fabric as flyers. We go to one or two a year, but they're constantly finding me and sending samples. So it could be from one fabric. I'm like, okay, we're going to do this with it, or this is how we can manipulate that because there's still a big textile element to the brand in terms with all our sweaters and our everything's hand sewn. So yeah, normally it starts with a fabric rather than imagery. Um, it's not really trend led, and I think everything's been similar since the start. You could see like a progression and development and design, but. It's the same aesthetic. So if someone is listening to the podcast and has never seen anything you've ever produced before, how would you describe your aesthetic? A lot of glitter and a lot of sequins and faux fur. Um, we've got a really big plus size audience just now. And I think it's because we're offering a product that's different. A lot of people who are size 16 and above always tell me that they feel like they're being given the same things to wear and they're almost being told what to wear by stores. Whereas we've have the every single product is made in a size 4 to a 28 and there's a lot of sequins a lot of faux fur and um, bomber jackets we always have a bomber we always have a sequin biker jacket i don't know it's just fun and really bright and colorful yeah i mean to me it feels like there's a real 90s aesthetic going through is that i mean is that deliberate is that i don't know i think that's just always been there i think from the beginning it was maybe a little bit more deliberate I think at the very beginning of the brand, you'd be looking at like Tumblr and the way people were styling things, whereas now those platforms don't even exist and the aesthetics remained the same. And there's obviously, sometimes we have, I used to design collections from the beginning that it was a starting point. So one was a trip to Cuba, so that was the starting point and everything was like very visual and you bought everything together and all the fabric samples. But now it's totally changed because your design time's so minimum now when you're putting out so much work. So how long, how long did you spend on the actual design work? Like a couple of days. Okay. And the rest of the time is spent now invoicing and working <laughs> with buyers. And you know, like the boring things actually keep a company running, but mm. that is realistically what happens now. And so, so once you've, so you've got to the point at which mm -hmm. you, you have, you've got the inspiration, mm -hmm. you've spent a couple of days doing the design. The so, twirling takes longer. So that's, okay. so I think a lot of them, their design process as well. I mean, I could sketch out a collection in a day of what I want it to look like. Um, sourcing and getting all my fabrics and obviously takes longer. That's not done in a couple of days. But that's, so we could be building up a season from the last one. I mean, normally when I'm working on a collection, I'm already thinking of the next one that I'm wanting to do. Or we've got fabric samples that have came in and it doesn't quite fit with that. And I'm like, okay, this is what we're going to do for the next one. We're going to do a mini release of this. So I'm always kind of, constantly thinking in that creative way in terms of fabrics and then twirling takes longer that's when we put things together but because we have the same core items in all collections we're not having to change our patterns a lot it's just like slight pattern manipulation that's when you make the garment um yeah and then for me it's like bringing it all together in the shoot and the styling of it and having like our core brand aesthetic running through everything so yeah i guess that kind of like 90s influence which is everyone. I'm always really passionate about street casting models and I like people that just look that a little bit different. I like a personality coming through them and through the clothes. And so, I mean, you produce everything in-house. Yeah, I mean, I've worked with so many factories over the last, like, three years. It's been back and forward. Because we do 20% wholesale, some of our stockists, I mean, the unit sizes could be 500 units in an order and we can't physically, there's no way we can make that on like a lead time of six weeks. Mm -hmm. So that's from when you get like the purchase order in to when it has to drop in store and it's just impossible. I mean, we'd have to be making so many a day. Um, yeah, so we have used factories. I've tried to keep it as much to 
Scotland and UK, but there's not a lot of manufacture here anymore, and the product price point is so expensive. Like That's the I mean, something that Haley, when so, she was on, talked about as well. Mm-hmm. It's really difficult to I get that I think we've done used the same one that went under. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think there's just like so many times that you get someone and you get manufacturer and you're like, okay, we're sorted. And I found now the way we work is we work with two seamstresses who are in the building who have like their own units. So we're not paying for units and they're busy. They work with other brands as well in Dundee and they're busy with their production. So it's not a case. It's not so busy. You need to slot in production time, but I could ring down and be like, look, I've got, this is what's needed made. Can you make this? Can you fit it in for that deadline? And they're like, yeah, that's fine. We don't make loads ahead. So some stuff are made to order as well from the online store. But when we make a collection, I try and have like a few in each size. So we have the capacity in our studio to have five machines on at all times. So normally there's three girls in always sewing and working and working through things. Um, but yeah, it's just been so hard finding that balance with manufacture. In one way, the first factory we did, I totally overordered everything and we had so much stuff. And I tried to think of, for me, it was trying to think of like product that had a good markup on it that um, we could sell. And it ended up being, we overordered on some stuff that like didn't sell at all. And I've literally still got those skirts in there. <laughs> and I don't even like them. They're so far away from anything else we designed. But I was trying to think of what can we produce and what could be made in a factory and what we could get most of done with. And um, a lot of factories as well won't work with some of the fabrics we use or they're difficult or they don't like this fastening with this fabric and... It's just so much easier doing it in-house and you've got better control over everything as well. Um, So yeah, we're still at a kind of sticky point with our stockists. There's some that we'd like to work with and we'd like to work with on bigger orders, but I can't physically take them because we can't produce them. And also the cash flow for manufacture. It's a lot of money, like going in and putting in a 1,000 unit order. You've got to cough all most of that up for the first time um, straight away. So yeah, a lot. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to balance mm-hmm. there. Like, there's there's creating a product that will sell. There's creating a product that will um, continue the, mm-hmm. and to evolve and as part of the brand and to, that feels part of that that sort of family. Uh-huh. Um, and then, yeah, it's keeping everything moving. It's getting the, the people in place to do it in time to get it out. And then, yeah, there's a lot of like different plates to keep spinning at the same I time. I feel like it's really hard as well working in... This is one thing that's hard about working in Jundee is keeping... Like our production team changes all the time. So we can have a really, really good setup. In summer, I had a great setup. I had just really good people that were working with me um, because we rely so heavily on students and people in placements um, and they just become part of the team, part of it. So we have the two seamstresses that we work with all year round, all the time. And then. So they're freelance yeah, they're seamstress freelance. that yeah. you contract in. So I've got one person on payroll. Okay. Um, and that only started when I went on maternity leave and then they've changed over. So the girl, Christy, who's on payroll just now is like my absolute right hand. But she's went back to university because she was on a year's industrial placement and ended up just taking a job with us. And then she has to go back to finish it. Otherwise, that year doesn't count. Um, so, yeah, I'm absolutely good. So the setup that we had in summer was so good. There was six of us in every day. Everything was getting made ahead of schedule. And then just because you're relying on people that you've only got for a certain amount of time and then it just changes and the whole dynamic changes. So I think last time I went to record, I was like trying to scramble and find my feet because we had so many big orders in, but I had no one to produce them. So it could be quite scary. Yeah. And you've, so you recently just advertised um, a an internship programme. Yeah, I think um, the person... So we've always had internship programmes. What started was Adopt an Intern. Have you ever 
heard, I've heard about worked with them. Yeah. So the first time we had an intern was to adopt an intern, and that was great. They pay them for three months, and you pay the wage, and then they give it back to you kind of thing. And that person ended up working with me for three years, so it was amazing. Um, and then she went and worked for a big company. But, yeah, I think you've always... I'm, you've always got to look at people's like career progression as well because realistically being a small company there's only so much you could pay someone as a full salary and I really want all the girls to do really well so if they get offered a really great position somewhere else you've just got to let them go and go for it and it's so bittersweet because you really enjoy working with people but you've got to see what's best for them as well so we've had um two new people start with us and then I've taken another person on for like a 12-week contract so I work with like 12-week freelance contracts all the time so someone comes in for three months and I'll work on that collection with you so once you've you've created that that collection um you have it ready to go um what's how does it work from then so most of my thing now is on sales like that's what my job is when I'm in there so it's speaking to buyers and who's going to actually take the product in terms of wholesale and also what's going to sell so our whole production process and our designing process we do like Instagram stories every day so everyone's connecting with it so we do a lot of pre-orders through that so an item can be sold and we know we're going to make this much on that item before it's even up there basically Um, so that's how we work in terms of drops and then everything's listed and it's online so how how do the buyers side of the thing how does that work I so the first time when I just graduated going way back from when I was talking about and I got my first studio space the reason that it actually became a business is I'd won a competition with ASOS and um, it was with a business maker called Alison Louie and she came on and like developed a business plan. I didn't have a business plan. I was just free rolling at the beginning with things. And um, she was like working with me in terms of business and my ideas and objectives, looking at our sales figures. And the whole point in that plan was that you worked with them for six months and then you were stocked on ASOS as an actual, because they've got ASOS Marketplace where you run like your own independent online store. We'd always had that, but this was like to be sold wholesale. Um, so that was my first introduction to buyers. And I remember the first time we worked with them, the unit was a thousand unit order and um, it was all bought in and I was like it won't take even that long to, we only had to like package and process it in the end and I remember I had like my mum my dad my gran like her friends from the bingo <laughs> literally so many people in Meadow Mill like the whole corridor just packaging things because you had such a tight turnaround for the order to be picked up and I had no experience with buyers didn't know what I was doing you're not taught any of that at university and um, it's a whole different language as well just like skew codes I hadn't worked in retail I was like I don't even know what that is um and I remember I'd like sent it all and was waiting and waiting and waiting to be paid for it and didn't understand and I mean it cost so much to produce that that was another one like begging borrowing stealing money to get this order fulfilled and I um, was waiting I was you know I was due everyone I was due like two and a half grand out and was like oh my god how am I going to pay all these people back what am I going to do and um, it was because I hadn't invoiced for the order and I just didn't even know that that was the thing that you had to invoice for it after so they were like we've not received an invoice for this girl and we've had all these products and they've been selling for ages so I think like everything's just been a massive learning curve so I now approach buyers just I'm honestly like a spy. I could get anyone's details in minutes. I'm so blooming good. Um, so normally we like find people on Instagram or they find us and they are interacting anyway and liking a comment on things and then I'll find their details off that or I'll find them from LinkedIn. And it's almost like cold calling. It's terrible. Um, but with emails. And normally if they're following you and following your stories and there's a slight interest there, but I think the biggest just with a buyer is if you can't fulfill the order. So when the purchase order is raised, 
like the time you're normally given like four to six weeks in fashion to fulfill an order and get out to them and um, I think their biggest risk is if they're risking in a new brand and then you can't fulfill it so um, yeah we've been really lucky with everyone we've had and we've built up like a core number of stockists so now like we've got our key accounts like Dolls Kills a key account so every season whatever we put out we know they're going to purchase like about 12 to 13 looks so that's really good and that keeps everything running um but yeah I love like sourcing new stores or if you're just like out in your way or in London or Paris and you just find new shops or find new boutiques or places you've not heard of or stores you've seen on Instagram and just get contact details it's just about networking and building that part of the business I'd like to expand our wholesale more over in the next year but also there's not as much money in wholesale at all as direct consumer because you're selling it at, like a much lower price point and the rate market up so who do you think that you're who is your customer my customer i think i don't know it's a lot of people are working in the creative industries i mean and we've got we've had so many customers that have ordered stuff and i'm like i really recognize that name like i remember when pulling my faith ordered i was generally like i <laughs> recognize that name and I was like no it won't be <laughs> and then she was wearing it like the next day and then a me concert um for so that, that wasn't she's like an order no yeah, just so, come through the website same with Miley Cyrus her stylist just like ordered stuff and I was like even the name for stylist I was like I really recognize that name and Tess Holiday, who's done so much for us in terms of like growing our audience base and tapping into that plus size market um when she ordered I was like, kind of recognise her name as well, but didn't know who she was. Um, so yeah, I think just our audience on Instagram has such a big reach that these people end up purchasing stuff and we build up a relationship from then on and then can like give them products from new collections. Um, yeah, that's all just been completely natural. So most of our customers seem to work in the creative industry and just like getting dressed up and have an item in their wardrobe that's a statement piece. It's a little bit weird, <laughs> a little bit different. Um yeah, and that's how our customer is. So they're definitely young, but with a bit of spendable income. Um, our top sale price is like £330 and our average sale price is 170 so around them. And like, do, do you wear your own yeah. stuff? Like day um, to day and just Not like, day to day yeah. because it's completely, it's all like sparkles. and So anytime that I'm going to an event or I'm going on a night out, then I'll be wearing it. Um, but yeah, my day to day life is pretty blooming boring. <laughs> So there's always time for a bit of sparkle. Because, yeah, I mean, you said that you're now responsible for, like, a lot of the, the admin mm-hmm. side. Um, and there's obviously, like, I mean, you, you're reeling off, like, loads of, of numbers and, like, there's a mm-hmm. lot of complexity and, like, balancing everything and making it work. And, like, did, is that just stuff you've picked up? Yeah, completely. It's not, like you know, you're not oh, doing gosh, any training no. or anything like that. No. no. I love a business book and a podcast. Um, but, no, it's just completely stuff that... I've learned and it's came naturally and it's all been from making mistakes and um, when I do like any panel talks that I, I now mentor brands of cultural enterprise office that are on like a zero to 25,000 pound turnover and um, so we're at like the very beginning stages and basically I'm just telling them all the mistakes I've made and how to avoid them and um, trying to put like a process in place so I find like that part of the business really interesting I mean I find admin boring but I like seeing like how you can grow and how you can grow your turnover and realizing like how much money you need to be making to keep everything running and we've been running for so many years now so it's definitely happening also how to expand I went through a year that I really just wanted to expand we had like a lot most of our customers are international customers as well 
our biggest audience is America and Australia. So that's where I co- my core stock is I wanted to be. So I knew I wanted to, I said like 10 stores in each country and tried to pick the best stores. Um, I put a lot of money into expanding things, but I didn't have like that backbone and production and things in place. So it just didn't work. It just lost a lot of money. Um, same with trade shows as well. I've always wanted to go to trade shows and meet all these buyers and no one tells you it doesn't really work like that. Um, so you could pay like five grand to go to a trade show and then you've got to like kit it out and get everything. But unless you've got those buyer meetings and everything in place, you could just have people walking past your stallers or taking business cards, but no one's actually really following up with stuff. Um, and I think the market's always changing as well. So like the way we've operated has completely changed in the last five years. And um, for me, it was so important to have everything manufactured in the factory and bought in. And I felt like I wasn't a proper business till I had that all done. Um, and then we did have that and it just wasn't working it wasn't working and my customers weren't reacting to it people are when they see an item they're asking like why is it available now and they want to purchase it straight away and um being able to manufacture it in-house then we could say okay we're doing a limited run we're going to do two in each size and we let people know and then it's already sold before it's made so yeah we've completely changed how we've purchased and i think stores are changing as well even our stockists they used to take like a phenomenal number of units and now people take 200 units and that's not all because they're not like in your style anymore. It's just that's just the way buyers are working. Mm-hmm. There's like a lot more risk. So I mean, to jump back a l- okay. to jump back a little bit, mm-hmm. um, you mentioned about the, the sort of uh, becoming a mentor um, yeah. and talking about your mistakes, which I think is really really important. Um, and it's something that trying to do with the podcast is mm-hmm. sort of unveil that and sort of show some of the the real stories behind the the great people, the great creative people that are working in Dundee. So, like, what are the the biggest mistakes that you've made that others could could learn from? I think a lot of it's to do with manufacture and also I say I'm really good at managing and delegating people but I'm such a softy and I could have people working with me that I just know aren't right and I know things are getting done and mistakes are being made but I'm just too frightened to tell them. (laughs) So I think a lot of it's that and um also in terms of manufacture i've had a lot of risks like i've put a lot of money into factories and things have happened and the products haven't came out and you've lost your money um also with trying to expand i think with your own business everyone always pushes you kind of tells you where you should be and i remember like a constantly you're wanting to do better and you're wanting to do more and i had this vision of where i wanted isolate heroes to be and realistically where it was was fine and um every you're like really pushed to grow but I think you need to know what you're doing and be financially stable and have it in place. So when you say you're pushed to grow, who in particular is doing that? Well, I don't know. A lot of it's me as well. I think I know when you just estimate what you're wanting, what you're where you're wanting your business to be. But um, I've had that, like I've had mentors that have just not been the right fit. So I've had ones that are like luxury brands or heritage brands or someone who's worked for them but have never had their own business and they're talking to you in terms of cash flow this is the salary you should be paying yourself and I'm thinking if I paid myself that salary then I wouldn't even have a business um it's not realistic or they're trying to like push you in the wrong direction so when you say where you want to be is that purely on a, a money level or the oh no like no I think just in terms of where I want my brand to be um how I want to be recognized what stockists I want to be in who like I want to still be engaged with customer base and that's so important to us and I think Instagram's been the key part of that for me and I think everyone starting out is so determined like when I'm working with smaller brands they're so determined to be at a certain level or be stocked in all these stores but you need to have like that core customer base to grow to that because 
if you do get brands that have invested a lot of money or they get a lot of funding and suddenly they're stocked in 10 stores or really prestigious stockists like Selfridges and it just fizzles out. And it's just because they don't actually have like the brand there yet and they don't have the customer base and we've always kind of had that and grown on it. So, and I do think that when, as your brand grows and your business grows, you become like a firefighter and the fires are just bigger that you've got to put out. Suddenly there's like bigger issues or there's bigger things with stockists. When you start by working with stockists, there's a lot of like paperwork that you've got to sign and things that have got to go right and delivery times that have got to be delivered. And it's you're relying on so many people down that production chain. Even if you are working in-house, there's so many different things that you're relying on. And if one thing falls away, like the whole order could disappear. And it's scary. And and you talked about the, the sort of Instagram being this. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a, a massive channel for yeah. you. Um, does that like the the social media like expectation or um, that having to do it like so many posts and like consistently? Does it ever become a burden? Not really. I mean, I'm not consistent at all with Instagram. Okay. <laughs> I don't think I've got like. I think we've got clear aesthetic, but I think the brand is so visual anyway. I mean, like the fabrics we use and the colors we use and who our customers are. Our customers tag us in stuff all the time, every day. So I've normally got like 50 customer tags that I can like pick from and put up. So there's always like that. They're feeding into it as well. So I don't ever struggle for content or think like, oh, I want to do it. And I'm quite a natural chatty person. So I enjoy doing stories. I'm not scared of doing that. And I like showing the whole production process. We're always doing a good old time lapse and showing how the item's made. And people are really interested in that because I think from the outside, if you're looking at the Instagram feed, it looks like it's this huge brand that's probably manufactured here and then when you look into it and you see how it's made you realize it's actually like two or three people in there every day just like trudging through these orders so do you think that you're successful i don't know i feel like successful in terms of where like i'm feel satisfied now and i feel happy i think over the last few years there's like when I started going to trade shows and was investing a lot of money in them and wanting to expand wholesale, I wanted like my dream stockist with Selfridges and I really wanted to be stocked in Selfridges. I wanted my product to be this price range. But if I made my product that price range, we'd be alienating our whole customer base and all the followers and the people that are actually like speak to tuning in every day. But you know what I mean? Like interacting with you every day. Like they wouldn't be able to afford the product. So I think my goals have changed over the years um, and I feel like satisfied now where I am. So... So what are your, so going forward, what are your goals now? I think um, I just want to have a really good customer experience for people. There's still things that I really need to iron out. It's so hard when you're match- manufacturing everything in-house and like keeping up to date with production. Um, and I think I really need to employ more people. So working on that and how to get like a core team that's a bit more stable and there all the time. Like I said, you've always got like a turnover of people. So yeah, finding people that you're actually constantly working with so that stability is there and that groundwork's there and then it's easier to build on like your goals and achievements from that. So I mean, for me, it's really just to have a good customer experience. We have like a live checkout chat that I feel like I'm constantly working like 2 a.m. I'm blooming messaging customers back from all over the world and I just would love if like someone else had a full-time customer service person to take up on that. So yeah, I think the interaction is so hard now when you're building a brand because it's constant people are constantly either messaged on instagram twitter facebook i mean if you don't give someone a tracking number i receive like 18 messages in about five minutes over it on all these different platforms so yeah mine's is like building that core team 
And so do you feel that um, it's hard to switch off? Um, I've got like a one and a half year old, so I just have to switch off with things. Otherwise, it's too difficult. But um, I'm constantly working. Like, I think Richard, my husband, would say that I just always have my phone in my hands. But I think to live like a lifestyle that you want to live and to have a company and be running it, you just have to you've got no other choice so I don't think I don't have a work-life balance because I still manage to do like all the things that I want to do and all my family things I mean I just have my phone in my hand while I'm doing them but I think that's just so normal now like that's what we do do you think that's healthy I don't know if it's healthy um I switch my phone on airplane mode at like 10 o'clock and then normally I take it off before I go to sleep because I've got to check um <laughs> and just see that there's not any disasters I think like a lot as well when you've got a following not that we've got like a massive following but when you've got a following of like 48,000 social media crisis management like comes so into play so speaking of like things when things go wrong and um just little things like if you don't credit if someone you've see, seen a picture that someone's copied on Instagram or they've changed it and then I've screen grabbed it and regrammed it's so ridiculous, regrammed that person but they weren't the original source. I mean I've done stuff like that. I've went to bed, put up a picture because um like all of our audience is always most interactive at night, put up a picture at like twelve, went to bed, woke up in the morning and there's like five hundred comments about like this isn't that work and you're like, oh my God <laughs> trying to it sounds so ridiculous, but it's really not. So I mean we've talked a lot about the, the sort of failures uh-huh. and the, the negative side of that. But so so <laughs> negative Nancy. Yeah. No, I think I've forced you down uh-huh. that. But um so what are like the the favorite your favourite things that you've done with the business since you started it? Favourite things. So that could be anything. Um I think like having a lot of influencers before they were influencers and just making like really good relationships with these people i mean there's people now that i know like their media packs and how much they charge a post but i became like friendly with them because they supported the brand at the beginning and they've always wanted to like support a new style or wear something and um like i have a really good relationship with like tess holiday and having like that relationship with people and when we went to america i like met some of our customers and it's just really nice to have that connection with people that you would never ever have so i think that's like my high points i mean there's been like pretty cool stuff that we've done with like tv things and x factor and when the vna opened we've done b charlotte's outfit and i mean all of that feels good it feels good when you get those things um but i think mine's has just been like having that connection with customers it feels like you've got loads and loads of friends <laughs> it's great you say that like you don't no like, but you know what i mean like yeah yeah totally having like, that connection with everyone who's in like different places in the world and who have their own platforms as well it's great. but I, I mean i think a lot of what you're talking about is making a genuine connection to people yeah i think it's really i mean from what you've said uh, everything is about having a, a brand that really speaks to your audience that mm-hmm. they can really feel part of yeah and i have like customers that have purchased stuff from the very beginning and to me that's so nice i mean i don't know i use shopify so it shows like your lifetime spend and i'm like i don't know what those customers would even know what their lifetime spend was but it's crazy because they actually buy something i mean i've got some customers that buy everything every time a collection comes out and to me having that kind of like brand loyalty and someone that you have now a relationship and a friendship with like i know what their blooming mum's called like i speak to them online as well and having that core connection with people is just great i don't ever want to lose that so 
if you had like 50 million blooming stockists, I would hate to lose that. So it's just trying to find like how to grow a business, but keep that level of communication. So what if someone who's been brand loyal the whole way through and then you bring out your next collection and they turn around and they don't like it? I do always take feedback on boards. I mean, I've had like some sticky situations where we've had things that like production's not went right. It's mostly production problems that we have when it comes to problems in my business, um, which has been like, it's always different production problems the more your business grows. But when I was off for a year, well, I wasn't off for a year. I took some maternity leave. I was in from like 16 weeks for the river. But anyway, um, yeah, when I was off then, like we had a really busy period and there wasn't enough staff to basically fulfill everything. And like some of our really good customers who place like expensive orders to buy everything in the collection um, and it like stuff wasn't right or there was something wrong and things weren't made right um, and you've just got to like sort it out and own up to it and be like look we're really sorry so we're under pressure we're going to get it right for you but in terms of like design we've been lucky because not every collection has been similar like the aesthetic I understand what you mean by like that 90s styling and aesthetic but I think that all comes down to the styling we always use sequin and I always have hand embellishment in every collection and um, that's like core to every collection so if sequins has never really been in fashion I think that's the thing like now the what's changed with us as well is this whole we were a trend brand originally with buyers that's what they purchase it as a trend brand like something new and exciting like an emerging designer but now there's this like festival edit that was not a thing when we started and I guess like we fall into that but when I started like that wasn't a whole a part of like the buying calendar which it is now so for me it's really important not to just become like a festival brand and for our products to be purchased all year round like our busiest trading periods have always been October, November, December because people have more spendable money with Christmas and they're going out more because it is statement going out where like you said to me do I wear it every day? No but I mean if I was on like a business trip, I'd be wearing it every day. Um, but if I'm just going to the studio, then not really. I mean, I'd love to wear it every day, but it's not like the most practical. So I think when people have more events to wear them to, that's when it's more busy. So for me, it's really important. Obviously, summers now became so festival heavy, especially with Instagram and influencers and people are wanting things all the time. So our summers now becoming more busier than our Christmas periods and it is all changing. But I just don't want to fall into that like festival brand bracket. I mean, obviously, you, you've you've built this brand from Dundee, mm-hmm. um, and you'll have seen a lot of change happen um, in the time that you've been here. Is it a good place to build a fashion business? Yeah, I think it's amazing. I think what I like most about Dundee is the amount of startups there are, and um, it's not like you have an idea and you run with it, and people are like, "Oh, here they go." Um, I feel like people genuinely have like a can do attitude and hope everyone does well which I think is a really good thing I think in terms of where I am in Meadow Mill I mean there's two freelance seamstresses that work with loads of different designers it's not just me there's an embroidery place on the ground floor there's a screen printing place if you want to use it you can expose your own screens at DC which is a five minute walk away I mean like that whole little area is just bustling with creativity and different like sources that you could use so it's great um, and you could be based anywhere now I mean I can never open a shop because our customer base is so varied. It's all international. It's all different countries. So it's not like I've got a strong customer base here. I mean, we do sell to Dundee, but not as much as other places. Um, So I think, yeah, like the rates are good. It's just a great place to start a business. 
and like one of the one of the problems in the city is talent retention and attracting talent to come here um and obviously it's a, it's an issue that you've sort of resonated with and that building that that team so how do you think we we go about doing that how do we improve i think it's so hard from making the journey from being a startup to the second stage of a business where you can employ people and that's where i struggle with i can only have one other person realistically on payroll with me and i want to move that to five so People do, I mean, if I've got like six people that work with me all summer and I could only pay some of them this amount, the restaurant work placements, then it's impossible to like keep people here. And I think there needs to be support for businesses that at the beginning, I mean, we didn't get any, but there is like startup support available for people. And I think it's just expanding it and keeping it there. So, I mean, other than obviously like money would be great, uh -huh. but what, what else could be like, what else could we do to help that? Other than just giving you a cash injection. No, to I don't pay think. God, even if I got a cash injection, I wouldn't even know what to do with it. <laughs> so I think it's like having that mentorship here in Dundee yeah. and having that support. So, I mean, like, it is such a supportive city. Julian Eaton's always been a supporter for me, even at the very beginning. I'd done like a pitch kitchen, I'd only been graduated about six weeks or something. Um, yeah, so there is Creative Dundee and there is a lot of support here anyway. And I think it's just. I don't know, networking and connecting with all these people and maintaining that. Sure. Um, so just before we finish up, mm -hmm. um, you obviously, you mentioned before about uh, podcasts that you listen to and other things. Um, can you recommend some stuff that you've watched, listened to, read recently? Um, what have I read? So, like, ones that are, like, known by loads of people. Tim Ferriss, 4-Hour Workweek. Loved that one. His podcast is a bit cringy, but there's... He does interview some people and they have really good business perspectives. Um, what else do I love? I love Jensen Cheros. All her books are quite good self-help businessy books. Um, what else have I got? Peter Thiel, Zero to 100 is a good business book as well. Um... A lot of books I like as well are like startup tech, which is so strange because I'm not in a tech business at all. But I just feel like there's approaches to how they've grown their business that could be implemented in your own. So yeah. Um, um, so yeah, so if, if people want to find you, see the latest collection, obviously Instagram. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, where's the best place to find? Um, probably Instagram for seeing things as they happen and to see it before it all comes out. So that's just at Isolate Heroes. And then... I mean, I never update the Facebook, so <laughs> don't go on that. And then we have our online store where all the products are released. Which is? Just isolated-heroes.com. Cool. Um, and there'll be a new collection by the time this podcast comes out. It'll probably yeah, be the week first after. Yeah, November. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to that. No teaser. We're shooting with, um, as usual, street cast girls, but we've got like every body shape possible. So I think that's so important as well. When we're making things, it's not for like a stereotypical model. So we have like a really good group of girls in that all have amazing personalities and look great. So I can't wait. It'll look different. And is it different models every time or do you go back to the same There's people? There's some girls that we use that we just use for ease or they're in Dundee or they're in the city. And I mean, like Chloe Mitchell, Velma Pickles, she's just great. She just looks so good. And she fits in so well with our brand and love using her. She's fun to shoot with as well. I like people who are fun and have loads of energy and are creative on set. So, yeah, this time we're using four completely new girls. So I'm looking forward to it. Okay. And we're always casting. People email and messaging all the time, asking if they can model or get involved. And, yeah. 
Cool. Thank you very much. Thank you. So thank you to Samantha for coming on and doing the podcast. It, I mean, I felt it was a really great insight into the brand, how she built it um, and how she's developing it and the struggles that she's had and the mistakes that she's made. Um, and it was really, it was properly honest and I really appreciated that. Um, but I mean, also the, the sort of, the madness of having Paloma Faith and uh, Stylist for all the stars just just going through the website just buying her stuff and that's happening for a for a brand that was created and then well and built in in dundee um it's pretty phenomenal thanks Fred. really appreciate your input <laughs> anyway so yeah um one little thing before we go uh, I do have another podcast that I sort of plugged before, but it's now live. Um, it's called No Opinion, and it's for it's much more design based, um, and it's created as part of my design studio, so Agency of None that I run with Lyle Bruce. Um, the first episode sort of gives you a bit of an insight into why we created the studio, why we created this, this uh, the No Opinion podcast, um, and then the second episode is us going down to the local heroes exhibit. Um, that happened a couple of months back in Glasgow and talking to people about why Scotland doesn't have an embedded design culture and why it needs one. Um, so it's a really interesting episode. And for that one, we'll be releasing sort of episodes sporadically. It won't be quite as regular as kind of chit-chat, but um, if you are interested in design and um, it's not specific to Dundee or Scotland or anywhere, we're just sort of throwing it out. So we're going to try and get out of Dundee, out of Scotland, out of the UK and actually chat to people about what they feel design is and what it should be and how it can change things. And yeah, so that should be exciting as well. So check out that. It's no opinion. Um, it's agencyofnone.com forward slash N-O. And you'll get that. And if you want to keep it up to date, our Twitter will help you do that. So it's at agencyofnone and we'll release, uh, well, release, we'll put out tweets um, when we're releasing episodes. But yeah, if you want to keep up to date with this podcast, um, if you're not sick of me saying this already, but it's at CCC Dundee on Twitter and on Instagram and it's facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash CCC Dundee and you'll find out all about the guests and all about everything that's coming up and when the releases go out. But yeah, that's it. The first one back after the break. And I'll catch you next week. Goodbye.